Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. You, you certainly should start with the brain dumbest dummies book you can to make sure you understand the words. So there's plenty of dummies books that will define the words of liquidation and preferred and dilution and all those other things. You don't need big ideas. You just need to make sure that all these words are clear to you when you're talking to people. Then beyond that, I don't, Steve Blank has probably written something that's useful about this, but I couldn't tell you the title of it. But as you're an entrepreneur entering this space, you really want to find, and I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which one, will help you see it. Fred Wilson has every Monday posts on his blog something that someone in your shoes needs to read. It's called MBA Monday, where he describes this. So one of the examples I'll give you is, how is it possible for a venture capitalist to put $20 million into a business at a $100 million valuation, and then the company sells for $50 million, and the venture capitalist makes a profit? How could that be? Right? Because he ought to only get $10 million back, because it's sold for half of what he valued it at. I mean, anything else in the world, if you bought half a cow and valued the cow at 20 bucks, and then the cow sold for 10, you'd get half as much money back. Except the venture capitalist has a paragraph that says, we get paid first. So of the 50 million, we get 20 million plus a guaranteed return. Then the entrepreneur gets the rest. So sometimes you'll read about an entrepreneur who's crowing about this big exit. They only got a dollar. Because everyone else who came along is in front of them for how they split up the money. So you have to be very careful particularly if you're dealing with dentists or other amateur investors, about how all this is written. Because it's easy when everyone's excited. But at the end, it can get really, really, really tricky. Because the investor might want to teach you a lesson. And the investor will say, well, yeah, I know you have an offer to sell this company, but here's what it says. So I'd rather the company go out of business and you get nothing than me not to get what's in writing. So that's why... What you've heard me say for three days is get your customers to fund your business. Get your cash flow to fund your business. That when someone cares enough about what you're building that they pay you up front for the first one just to make sure it gets built, you now have the money to go build the next one. If you don't run out of cash, no one can tell you what to do. So here's, here's the dilemma. When I was starting Yo-Yo Dine, we were before the internet. We were really early. Then the internet showed up, and I was five miles up the river, three miles up the river, and I needed to hire two people a week on an ongoing basis, best people I could. I ended up buying a full-page ad in the New York Times to get enough people to come for interviews. And we would interview 50 people at a time in a big group setting, and then 
I mean, we really were focused on getting good people. And then they would sit down and I'd say, okay, but we're cash poor because we're not in California. So here's your choice. You can either get $80,000 a year and just a teeny bit of equity or $60,000 a year and a bunch of equity. And every single person picked 80. And it, I, I'm a fairly ebullient positive guy and they still wanted the 80. They didn't want to be my partner. And so when I sold the company to, to Yahoo for a whole pile of Yahoo stock, these people hated me because I somehow had not treated them fairly. Well, yeah, but they had had a choice and they picked 80. They didn't pick 60. So the interesting challenge when you say fairly is what do they value a part of your company as? And a part of it, it depends on where your offices are and what kind of person you're hiring and the story that they tell themselves about equity. Because there are companies in New York now where people are taking $20,000 living you know, on brown rice so they can have a huge chunk of stock. But that means their incredible focus is, let's sell this sucker. Because if you don't sell the company, you get nothing. right? Is that the employee that you want? Because if that's your goal, then that's the employee you want everyone aligned. On the other hand, you know, at Zappos, the people who went to work for Zappos didn't get a lot of equity. People who went to work for Zappos got the ability and insistence that they do unbelievable customer service. That's who he hired for, that's what he rewarded for, that's what he paid for, that's what people got. And so there was alignment. So that's the first thing I would say is you need to think about what do you want people to want and how do you tell a story about that? And that's why you know, what we know about money is past a certain amount, money is a demotivator, it's not a motivator, that very few people, and this is Dan Pink's new book coming out in December is about this, even commissioned salespeople tend to perform better in alignment with their company when you get rid of their commissions. And so we think people are motivated by money, but they rarely are. They're motivated by the story they tell themselves about money. It's a fundamentally different thing. So you then say to yourself, well, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to get cash flow positive? And if so, are we going to reward people the day that happens? Right? Are we using, what metric are we using and what's the reward that goes for it? So the summer that I co-ran my summer camp up in Canada, it was bankrupt literally the year before, and uh, the granddaughter of the founder and I came in to fix it. Well, one of the things, the first thing I did was triple the price of the camp. The reason I did that was you're either going to send your kid to camp or you're not. If you're going to send your kid to camp, you tend to pick a camp based on how much it costs. And rich people want a camp that costs more because it's a signal that it's a good camp. Well, I didn't care what kind of people sent their kids, so I picked rich people, right? <laughs> and it, like, so that, that, that act saved the camp. That was a storytelling thing. But then we get all these 19-year-olds there on our staff, and the question you ask, you want the staff to think about is, how does the staff decide if they've done a good job? Right? How do they push themselves to be in alignment with you? So what I said to them was, this, a lot of people come here to stay for eight weeks, but more and more of the kids stay for four weeks. And one way we can tell if we're doing a good job, do you remember this? One way we can tell if we're doing a good job is how many of the four-week kids call their parents and insist that they stay for eight weeks. 
So I sat the staff down. These are 19 year olds. I said, here's the deal. If more than nine kids, and in previous years then it was one, if more than nine kids call their parents and insist on staying eight weeks, we're going to throw all 90 of you, the staff, a blowout five-hour party. We're going to have a giant rotisserie animal on a, a stick. <laughs> we're going to, chef's going to come from Toronto. We're going to have pizza, this whole blowout. We're not going to talk about it every day. I'm just telling you, we're going to keep track of this. And it was like 18 kids decided to stay the whole summer. So we were in alignment because there was nothing a counselor could do to get a kid to stay other than make sure the kid was happy. That is the only way you get a kid to stay. So the performance of the staff went in exactly the direction we wanted. We didn't say to them, and we'll give half the profit to you. You're 19 years old. Well, no. We said, we'll put an animal on a stick, and you can spend all night eating it. And it worked, right? It worked all around. The staff enjoyed the process. It saved the camp, and the kids benefited. So when you're saying what's fair, I think what's fair is generally sort of transparent, but not completely, because open book management is really fraught with issues in a fast-growing company. And you've got to make sure that people understand equity the way you do, and it's unbelievable how few. Like if we went to Yelp's headquarters right now, or to Foursquare's headquarters, and we sat down with any employee, and we said, how many shares do you own? They would know. And then if we said, how many shares does the company have? They wouldn't know. And that's the only number that matters. Because owning 10,000 shares is irrelevant if there's 100 million shares outstanding. So one of the very first things that I did when we started hiring people after we raised money at Yoyodyne was I split the shares 100 for one. So I had more shares to give out. And then I would give lessons to people. I'd say, this is how many shares there are. This is your percentage. This is why percentage matters. It didn't matter. People just like saying they own 10,000 shares as opposed to 100 shares. It didn't cost me any more to add two zeros to the number of shares, but in their head, that number was what mattered to them. And so I was incredibly transparent and taught classes about all this, but that's not what people think about when they do this. So all of those factors kick in when you think about what's fair and how do we make a pool for these employees and percentages and things like that. It just leads to all this demotivation when what you really want is alignment. I'm wondering about personal financing of a company and where you draw the line. Right. You're planning it yourself. Exactly. Okay. So rule number one is you never put up your house. Don't laugh. Which means you can't sign a personal guarantee. Because if you sign a personal guarantee on anything, like, want to rent this? Okay, I'll rent this, but I'm not signing a personal guarantee. On anything. I have not signed a personal guarantee. I was bankrupt for eight years, this close to having to close down for eight years, and I still never signed a personal guarantee for anything. That is a line I have chosen to never cross, and I encourage everyone to. Because the minute you do, suddenly there's a three-year-old at home who's going to have to live on the street if you make a mistake. And I just don't know how to take risks when that's at stake. All right. So... Then the advice that I give people is, if we're going to be intentional about this, you need to write down a number and a period of time. And the number is the maximum amount of money under any circumstances, no matter what. It can be as big a number as you want that you're willing to put in. And when you hit that number, you can't put in another penny. People hate this. They say, well, but what if something, blah, blah. No, there just has to be a number. And the second one is, 
how much time before you give up. And again, it, it can be 20 years, fine. But you can't say 19 years and 11 months into it, but wait, there's one more deal that might come through. You just have those two numbers, because if those two numbers are in place and your spouse is aligned with it, you never have to worry about it again. It's just off the table. This whole situational thing, I just need two more thousand dollars, that's lying to yourself. And the discipline early on is so valuable because then you can spend 100% of your time focused. So, you know, the thing with Yoyodyne is when, when we raised $5 million, I thought that was more money than in, in the history of the world, right? And then the internet boom took off and our competitors raised $40 million, <laughs> right? And so our competitors were selling our product for zero. And we couldn't sell it for zero. So there was this huge disconnect between how much money we had and how much money we needed. And I spent the last nine months before we sold the company trying to raise money. And in one day, I went to three different states to do pitches. And it was really draining and demoralizing and had nothing to do with my business. And if I had spent all that time actually building my business, I would have been better off. So it, you, know, you raise more money than you think you need, and you treat it like it's the last money you're ever going to have. It's way better than always wondering where that next nickel's going to come from. So here's the deal. You're a brilliant designer. You come up with an idea for a t-shirt. You go to Macy's. You say to Macy's, I think you should sell this. It's January. They say, we'd love it for our fall catalog, for our fall store. We're going to order 20,000 t-shirts. And they give you a purchase order. Now you got to go make 20,000 t-shirts. You figure out that you can get it made in Italy or China or wherever, and the people who are going to make it say, that'll be $100,000, please. Now you don't have $100,000 because Macy's isn't going to pay you till December, 90 days after they get the shirts. This is called the cash flow problem because your business is looking really good. You get to book the fact that you have an order, but you don't have cash. And in fact, you can go bankrupt from having too many orders. So there's a business called factoring. And what you do is you walk down to 33rd Street and you show someone the piece of paper from Macy's, an order for $200,000. He buys the piece of paper from you and gives you $160,000 in cash. It's now his job to go get that money from Macy's when it's due. You take the $160,000, you pay the factory $100,000, the money that's left over is your profit. Interesting. You gave away almost half your profit to someone who only did five minutes worth of work, right? He solved your cash flow problem. See what that's about? So that's why a company like Amazon and Walmart can grow so fast, because Amazon and Walmart do the opposite. They say to Procter & Gamble, we'll take, then Walmart says, we'll take a million boxes of Tide. And Procter & Gamble says, okay, you owe us $3 million in 30 days. And Walmart sells it in three days. So for 27 days, they get to keep $3 million to build new buildings, run new ads, whatever, before they have to actually pay off P&G. So the faster Amazon grows and the faster Walmart grows, the better their cash flow is because they get the money before they have to pay it. Whereas for most of you, you're going to have to pay the money before you get it. And so that's why when you're choosing to build any business you want, you might as well build one 
where the cash flow is in your favor as opposed to one where the cash flow isn't in your favor. You might as well build one where uh, the money comes in before you need to spend it, given the choice. Does that make sense? Okay, so back to Sarah's question. When I was a struggling entrepreneur, I only kept track of one thing. How many days can I still stay in business? So if the number was getting too low, I would say, I have to go do a project that's going to pay. I have to go do some freelance work. I have to go figure out how to sell a $50,000 book instead of spending all my time on a $500,000 book because I need the money. And when there was enough of a cushion, I could say now I can invest time in whether it's personal growth or these like Stanley Kaplan SAT books that I did that got them into the book business. It took me five years to persuade Stanley Kaplan, the man, to say yes. So for five years, I was investing time on spec and got nothing. But I would have to stop for a while to go sell a book, you know, Buzzword Bingo, which we thought of on a Monday and sold on Wednesday and got paid on Friday because that paid six weeks worth of rent. Thank you for listening to The Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit earwolf.com.